From Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to another special episode of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. I'm Jenny Curtis, and today I'm virtually sitting down with a man who does it all. Joe Manganello is an actor, producer, director, clothing designer, author, philanthropist, D&D enthusiast, and so much more. He's best known for his roles in True Blood and Magic Mike, and his most recent project, Arch Enemy, is coming out December 11th. Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I want to start at the very beginning. When did you know that you wanted to be an actor? Middle high school. I didn't want to be in the theater club. That was not something I thought about, which is funny because that is exactly where I wound up. My high school, this is the early to mid 90s, mind you, had a TV studio. I took TV class and I would write TV shows and I would stay after school and type all the lines into the teleprompter so my actors didn't have to learn their lines. They could just look straight down the barrel and, you know, just read. You know, I made it easy for them and I would write these TV shows. And then it turned out that the TV studio had cameras that you could borrow and then go film movies with them. You know, it's not like today where everybody has a phone. If we had this when we were kids, I wouldn't have needed the TV studio. But back then, nobody had a camera. So it was really amazing and revolutionary and lucky. I really loved it. I would sleep with a pad and a pen next to my bed and I would write movies and I would produce movies. I would direct movies and I would then act in movies in high school. And my friends urged me to get into acting because of the acting I did in these movies. They said, oh, you're really good. Maybe you should think about real acting. And so my senior year, I took all the theater classes that I hadn't taken up to that point. So I was a senior, this big sports guy in their mind who was taking fresh freshman level acting classes. And the teacher came over to me and said, why are you doing this? What do you want? Like an easy A? Is that what this is about? I said, no, I, I want to be an actor. I think I can do it. After a few weeks, she came up to me and said, I want you to try out for the high school musical. And I was like, I don't know, what, like singing and dancing? No. She said, no, just come sing happy birthday. That's it. You can act out a couple scenes, read a couple scenes. Uh, all right. When's the play? What's well, in the springtime? No, I'm the captain of the volleyball team. I'm a four-year starter. I can't do it. No, please, just come. Just come. You know, she urged me to go, and I went. And then I got cast, you know, as one of the leads in the high school musical that, you know, my senior year. And that was it. It was like every step of the way, somebody breathed a little more confidence into me. And inside, I had that crazy feeling like, I could do this, or I'm going to die trying. And that's what happened. So I guess that's the origin story of how I got into it. And then I wound up getting into Carnegie Mellon University, which at the time was like the best drama school in the country. I wound up getting in there and it was like, oh, I can do this. So that's when you knew you wanted to be an actor. Is getting into Carnegie Mellon when you knew you were an actor? Yeah, to, a, to an extent. I mean, no, no, I should say no. <laughs> because <laughs> what am I talking about? No, Carnegie Mellon was scary because they would cut people. You know, they would just send people home at the holidays if they weren't performing or taking it seriously or, you know, whatever. So my freshman year, there were 17 actors, 16 musical theaters. They cut seven the first year. And then there were another seven that got cut the second year. So that's like 14 out of 33. So I, I knew that. So I was just trying to get through that first year, which was like so much work. It was insane. Somewhere during the second year, I thought, okay, I can make it. And then started getting cast in professional shows around town. While you were in school? While I was at school, yeah. Did they allow that or did you have to like sneak out to go do the work? You definitely have to ask them for permission. 
And that was the other thing too. Like I wrote a movie when we were in college. It was like Die Hard, but on CMU's campus. Uh, we got a whole bunch of money to shoot it, but we had to shoot it in secret from the drama department. We didn't want our teachers to find out because extracurricular activities are really frowned upon because of the workload. They wanted you concentrating on your work and that's it. And so in order to make this movie, we had to sneak out on weekends and not tell them what was going on until we were done and had it all filmed. That's definitely the trouble that everybody gets into in college, sneaking out to make a movie. Yeah, more work is basically <laughs> what we were doing. The insubordinate that we were engaging in actually was incredibly productive and difficult. And we were all taking this on. It's just they wanted you concentrating on your work and they wanted that to show through in the work that you were showing them, which shouldn't have had anything to do with film work. You know, their thinking at that time was you can do theater, you can do film, you don't need to be trained for film, which uh, is not that true. It's a bit of a learning curve. Yeah. I mean, I consider it like because I went to theater school and it was the best four years of my life, I feel like. But was it a memory that you look fondly on or was it kind of you had to battle your way all the way through and get to the end? What was your experience with school? No, it was brutal. There was so much work. Spring break would roll around and you'd turn on MTV and see spring break, the MTV beach house. And you're just like, wow, that's what spring break is. Because for me, it was like being dragged behind a truck that you're tied to for 10 miles. You know, spring break was when the truck went into park and you're just skidded <laughs> for 10 miles. And it's like, hey, man, let's go party. No, I just want to lay here for about a week. You were just so tired. Like I remember going home to my mother's house at holiday break and I would sleep for like a week. You know, here's our four page Robert Frost poem. Go learn it with perfect diction, perfect IPA phonetic alphabet and memorized off book and you're going to do it. And then you somehow pull that off. You're up all night smoking cigarettes, trying to get this Robert Frost poem in you. And then you get up there and you do it. You get graded. The teacher, thank you. She's marking all your errors. You made it. End of the class, she hands you another one for next week. They just push you and you're in multiple shows. You had multiple scenes going on. You had acting lab with all the different classical styles from ancient Greek all the way up through Brecht and Williams and et cetera and the modern era. And you're always working on a ton of different things at once. And they would say to you, it's never going to be this difficult again. And they were right. They really broke you down before they built you up, which in hindsight, I appreciate because once you were done or once you got into junior, senior year, you really felt like I could take on the world and I can do this. Is there a lesson that you learned in school that they basically said, you're not going to understand this now, but 10 years down the line, it's going to click? There were tons of things like that. There was an exercise we did one day in movement class that came into play when I was shooting the convenience store scene in Magic Mike 2, you know, when we started talking about the concept and in kind of the beginning, middle and end and the little miniature story that gets told in that scene, it brought me back to this exercise that we did in drama school called Cafe Smile. And it was like, oh, I've kind of worked out already the dynamics of what would make a scene like that work. I understand a guy who's embarrassing himself while he just continues to escalate the embarrassment that then results in a very small win, but a win. If you're sexy, you're not funny. So it was how to keep it goofy enough that it didn't become grotesque and unfunny because it was played in a pseudo sexy way. There was this exercise that we did that was exactly about that line where you had to walk that line. 
There were little nuggets like that. There were seeds that were planted in drama school where one exercise you did in one class one morning, 25 years later, becomes this memorable scene in this big Steven Soderbergh movie, (laughs) you know, or like Animal Project. That's the other classic. I had to be a penguin. I had to go to the zoo and study penguins to fix my posture because I was tall. And we had to do this outside in approach where you study an animal and then it informs the character. I thought, man, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. We had to do it sometimes for three and a half hours a day for weeks at a time. This was like a seven week chapter. And it was like, oh my God. But then I get cast in True Blood and it's like, I know exactly how to do this. I went and found wolves and live wolves and started studying the wolves and drawing the wolves and figuring out how they moved and kind of like going into the workshop and physically figuring out characteristics. I was watching dogs and how they behaved and how they treated people and when they were hungry or angry or agitated. And it was all what they trained me to do in school. So even the stuff I thought was the dumbest stuff ever, 20 years later, becomes the crux of an entire performance or five years on the show as this character that all was kind of built around that, let alone, you know, my character was from Jackson, Mississippi. So then there's the dialect work and all that, all those Robert Frost poems paid off and, you know, learn accents and dialects and things like that. And the mechanics, the math and science of acting. There was a lot that I learned from that school. So you graduated. Did you move immediately out to L.A.? Yes, I did. The school set up showcases in New York. You have three minutes on stage in front of all the agents, managers, casting directors, everybody. They come and recruit the young actors from the big drama schools, the way that coaches and GMs go to the NFL combine to see who's coming out of the big D1 schools. And it's like that with acting. And so I had three minutes on stage. I had a one minute monologue and a two minute scene with a partner as part of these showcases. And out of that, I got basically my pick of agent manager. There were people that were very interested in me starting to work right away. And I got offered a TV holding deal coming right out of school, but I didn't want to do TV. What? (laughs) Well, at the time it's 2000. So, you know, Larry Sanders and Sopranos were the only real cable shows at that time. So it wasn't the way that it is now. You did TV or you did film. Nobody worked in both. George Clooney had just left ER and it was a bit of an experiment to see what was going to happen and it was kind of working, but he was the only one that ever pulled that off. Nobody really bounced from TV and film. So you had to declare what you wanted to do. And I came out of school and people say, oh, what do you want to be? I go, I want to be a movie star. And they go, well, I can't help you, but go talk to this person. They can. So there was a bit of it right out of the gate. I got tested with it, which was here's a TV holding deal, which means we're going to start developing shows for you. And I said, that's not what I want to do. I want to do film. That same week that I turned down that holding deal, I was brought into audition for Spider-Man that led to me screen testing for Sam Raimi twice and then eventually getting that part. And I started screen testing for a lot of movies. I mean, you jumped right in. (laughs) It's like, so what, a week in L.A. and suddenly you're part of Spider-Man? Yeah, pretty much. You originally auditioned for Peter Parker, though, didn't you? Yeah, all the guys did. James did. Franco, who wound up playing Harry Osborn and the second Green Goblin, he auditioned for Peter Parker. I auditioned for Peter Parker. Toby obviously auditioned for Peter Parker. And then we all wound up screen testing for our respective roles and filled out the young men of the cast that way. But yeah, we all came in initially reading for Peter Parker. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old 
And today, felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being crushed. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkcode.com slash a moment of your time. From Spider-Man, it was an eight-year journey to True Blood. So it kind of feels like you were an overnight success, but people always say that there are decades of hustle behind an overnight success. So what were those eight years like for you? Uh, They were interesting. That's the period in an actor's life where step number one, make a living as an actor. So the path emerges. Not everybody gets the hand select how their path is going to go. You have to get in there like a layman, a worker among workers, put on your hard hat. And you're oftentimes working on things that you wouldn't watch or they're not really your jam. Or, you know, in my case, I did a comedy play in college that went over really well to the point where people were just saying, I didn't know you were that funny. You know what? You know, you discover like, oh, I can do this. But then you put it aside because, you know, mind you, this is the late 90s. So all I wanted to do was be in the next David Fincher movie or the next Fight Club or the next P.T. Anderson or, you know, all that stuff. You know, all those great indie guys that took over Hollywood at that time. Movies were it. So that's all I wanted. But what happened was during that period where you got to pay the bills so that you can quit doing those bang around, pay your rent jobs and just concentrate on acting full time. I wound up getting a lot of gigs on sitcoms. So many CBS comedies, pilots. I did a pilot that didn't go with John Leguizamo. And I wound up on How I Met Your Mother a ton. And then because of How I Met Your Mother, I got cast on this other CBS comedy They wanted to get me off of How I Met Your Mother onto their show until death. And then the guys from How I Met Your Mother wanted to do the follow-up show. So they wrote this show about a Pittsburgh sports dad. And Jamie Presley was fresh off of her Emmy and she played my wife on it. So all this comedy stuff was happening for me while I was paying the bills. I had to make a living as a character actor because people weren't handing me leading man. You know, they were, oh, you're too big. You're too this. You're too blue collar. You're too whatever it is. You want this thing, but they're not handing it to you. So what I had to do was learn how to be the big best friend or the big, funny, crazy best friend or the bad guy or the guy who was up to something. And then, yeah, like you said, True Blood happened, which was a leading man role that was tailored for somebody my size. They needed this big, gruff looking guy and you had to be romantic. There was a little bit of humor and the whole cast was comprised of theater actors for the most part. All of a sudden, this role came out of nowhere that was just made for me. What was it like on set? Like you said, you're all fantastic actors on this show, but doing absolutely absurd things. Everybody on that show was so good and so confident and had been around the block so many times that, yeah, we were just laughing hysterically, having a great time. There was a mixture of excitement and fear 
delicious fear when the new scripts would get sent to you. You're just tearing through these scripts to see what crazy shit they were going to make you do. Or if it wasn't your turn in the barrel that week, what they were going to do to somebody else. And you just got the biggest kick out of it all because it was like, oh my God, your kid, how the hell are we going to do that? Holy shit, I can't wait to see that. Oh my God. So it was a really fun atmosphere because you had the best crew on the planet the best creative minds in writer's room and this amazing source material with these far out wild ideas. And then all of us had to have such a sense of humor because, you know, he was Hamlet and he was fantastic. Oh, and this one just came from a play in the West End. And you should have seen me in that great Ibsen play that I did or, you know, whatever it is. And now it's like, take your clothes off and (laughs) you're a vampire and she's your vampire master and she's forcing you to fall out of love with the fairy and be in love with her. And in the meantime, you're going to be like having sex with her, twisting your head around, snapping her spine while she's vomiting blood all over the place, screaming your name. Like, sure, this is great. How are we going to figure this one out? And then you'd have these amazing creative minds get together and figure that out. And the result would be must-see water cooler TV, where the audience was 10 times more excited than we were to see what the hell was going to happen next and how they were going to pull it off. And the way that they treated us, it was like, we weren't just actors on the show. We were rock stars. I've never seen people get treated the way that we did when we were out in the world. Like people screaming and clawing at you and fainting. (laughs) It was like, it was the best. Everybody wants people to faint when they walk. (laughs) It was crazy. I mean, we'd look at each other and be like, this is as close as it's ever going to be to being the Rolling Stones for me. Was that a hard adjustment though? Having that suddenly be your life? No, I had a blast. I loved it. It was a good time. (laughs) We had Alan Ball on the show very recently, and he talked about when Bill is having sex with his maker and he flips her head around. That's what I was referring to, yes. Yeah, and he was like, that was probably the craziest thing of the entire show. That was the end of my first episode, actually. So all my family, oh, Joe's on a new show? Great! You know, and that was the episode they got to watch. Your mom must have been so proud. Yeah. Great. So then after True Blood, were you hesitant to join Magic Mike because you had already been kind of a role that required a lot of objectification, you might say? I don't even think about it as objectification because it's what the character would do. If you turn into a wolf and then from a wolf back to human, you don't magically have pants that show up. (laughs) This is logic speaking. So that's what the character requires. It was a show that really took you inside of bedrooms the way that other shows really never had and showed you that side of the rawness or the visceral interaction or this character building in those situations. So, okay, great. But the problem is, I think if you do that, you then run the risk of being marginalized or having the actual work that's gone into that marginalized and people don't see you as an actor. They see it as like a gimmick. So the idea that I was then going to go from that into Magic Mike or male stripper movie, it was like, oh boy, this is probably cementing people's minds that I'm some kind of goofy meathead, gym rat, non-artist, non-actor entity who is picking all this stuff because he's an exhibitionist who likes cramming it down everybody's throat that he's in good shape. And it's like, that's not really me. I was not interested in that. What I was interested in was working with Steven Soderbergh, who is, in my mind, maybe the greatest that's ever done it. To be able to work with a brilliant mind like that and going from working with someone like Alan Ball and Anna Paquin to Soderbergh and Matthew McConaughey, 
how could I say no to that? And I had a conversation with him about the script and I was like, Hey, this penis pump scene, what's that all about? What am I just walking? It's just going to be straight up me with this pump or how are you shooting this? You know, what are we doing? And he said, no, 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 no. It's two people having a conversation in the background and there's this thing blurry in the foreground and they're having this serious conversation and this thing just keeps blurrily inflating. <laughs> I'm going to cut to you and cut to your face pumping this thing and you realize what it was in the foreground that you'd been watching and had no idea what it was. And I went, oh, and all of a sudden the movie became clear and I realized, oh, this is so funny. The way he's laying this all out, this is going to be so subversive. It's so hilarious and so genius. He's taking this very base concept, you know, male stripping, and he's elevating it to the form of like high art and comedy. And it was like, okay, I'll do whatever you want. Let's go. So that's really what it was about. But I assumed that once it was over, I was going to have to dig myself out of some sort of perceived hole that I was in. And I was going to really have to watch what I did after that. But it did look like you guys had so much fun on both sets. I just watched the second one. I hadn't seen it before. There's a line in there where you say fucking vampire bullshit. Was that written just for you so people would have a blast at you being mad at vampires? No, you know what we did? Because I'm responding to, we're at the male stripper convention, so there's all these different groups and factions doing their routines to try to win the competition. And I'm out there peeking through the curtains to see what everybody else is doing. And they're doing a twilight routine. That's where we've come to in the art form that is male stripping was that we had now jumped the shark, which we talked about. It was like, what's the most ridiculous, horrible, awful, shitty male stripper routine. I'm like, what about Twilight or something? And that was at the time where everyone would always, have you seen Twilight? What do you think about Twilight? I just purposefully didn't watch it because I wanted <laughs> to be able to honestly answer. I've never seen it. So let's move on to the next question. For anybody who knows me, that was like an inside joke. Yeah, of course. Was there a day on that set that you think is probably the most fun? God, they were all funny. We would just laugh and crack each other up all day long. The one that really sticks out was I didn't know that I had a partially torn bicep and I shot the whole movie and trained every day on a partially torn bicep that by the grace of the movie gods didn't snap and roll up, which meant game over, the movie's done. And so it stayed attached miraculously through the whole shoot. I just thought I had dislocated my elbow. That's what it felt like. And on the day where I perform the wedding routine, which is that little nine inch nails section where I do that scene on the S&M swing, it tore really bad. There was a rip and a pop oh. and I thought it was gone. We went into the back room, a la Karate Kid, and everyone came around me and I was laying on the table and they had a masseuse that was working on it. I thought my elbow had dislocated because it didn't snap and roll up. And uh, Channing comes in and He's standing over me and he's like, do you want me to move my routine up? I can go today. I'll go today. You go tomorrow. I go, I don't think I'm going to be able to move my arm tomorrow. I got to go now. I turn to Soderbergh and I'm like, how many more tastes do you need of me carrying the girl up the stairs? Because that was agitating it. You know, it's a bicep. So he carrying there. He said, how many more shots? He thought to himself and he went, can you give me two more? I went, okay. I had to go back into it give him two good takes, fearing that it was just going to snap and we're done. And we got those two takes and then moved on to the S&M swing where I had to go jump up in the air and know that it was going to hold me up. Oh my God. But my brain wanted me to stop. It's like, we're not doing this. And I had to just put my arms down and have the faith that it was just going to hold and try to get all that weight into the tricep and just pray that it was going to hold. And it did. 
So I made it through that day and finished that routine, finished my shooting, and then another week of shooting, and then got home and went to see a doctor. And he immediately was like, you need to go into surgery. You have a torn bicep. I was like, holy, wow, okay. I guess that day was not the most fun day, but it was like the day I'll always remember because looking back, I don't know how I got through it. I don't know how we finished the movie. I don't know how we pulled that off. I can't believe we finished. Well, do it for the art, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So then you created your production company, 359, with your brother, Nick. What was the motivation behind forming a company? Well, I mean, you go back to those movies that I made in high school. I always loved producing and creating a story from the ground up. And then also on the other side of it, for whatever reason, people had trouble envisioning me or somebody my size, whatever it is, as a leading man. If it wasn't written for somebody my size, then it's not going to be me. I either need to be, like I said, the big villain or the big dumb guy, whatever it was. I had to learn how to play those characters because those were what was available. And so 359, the production company, was about chasing good stories, whether they involved me as an actor or not. Finding scripts that I knew were special, but also like Bottom of the Ninth, for example. It's an Italian guy from the Bronx who was a baseball prodigy who goes to prison at 19 and gets out at 38. It's like, okay, Italian, baseball player, Bronx, who else is going to play that, right? You know, it's like a leading man role that is believable and makes sense that you would believe that I was an athlete. If no one else was going to hand me those swings at the plate, pun intended, then I was going to have to go make it myself. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. The name 359 has a great story behind it. Would you just talk about that for a minute? It's dedicated to Roger Bannister, who was the first human being to break the four-minute mile barrier. The unit of measurement, the mile, goes back to ancient Rome. No one could run the mile in under four minutes. It's thousands of years heading into the 1950s. No one had done it. So everyone just assumed that's impossible. In 1952, this British physician, Roger Bannister, said, I think it can be done. A mile is traditionally broken into four laps around a track. So what he did was he went and found four sub-minute lap runners, and he would race against each one consecutively. And once he could beat all four, he then raced a mile for time, and he broke the four-minute mile barrier. He had the guts to say, the rest of society and humanity thinks this is impossible. I'm going to come up with a plan and a training method. And I'm going to break this impossible task into small digestible pieces. The most amazing thing about him breaking this record was a few months later, someone broke his record. And then within a couple of years, all these people around the world had broken his record. You know, that gets into this idea that it's only impossible because you believe it's impossible. And then once someone smashes that wall down and shows you 
that it can be done, all of a sudden, everybody can do it. So there's this mental barrier that keeps us from achieving. We can do things that we think are impossible. And in that day, he basically made the rest of humanity faster. I just like that idea that, oh, it's impossible. We'll watch this. I wrote a book about training years ago. If you can break training into smaller pieces, you know, because people, I think they go to the gym and they say, oh, that guy's in incredible shape. I'll never be there. I'm embarrassed. I'm just going to go home. What they don't realize is that that guy at the gym who's in incredible shape, he started out right where you're at. If you have a smart plan and you enact that plan, you'll get results. It's not this altruistic thing. It's just me with some form of chip on my shoulder going out and taking my career into my own hands because I know I can do things that people aren't giving me the opportunity to do. And one of those things is Arch Enemy, which comes out on December 11th. How did it get started? I was a huge fan of this movie, Mandy. It's like my favorite movie of the past maybe 20 years. I'm obsessed with this movie, Mandy. And I started hunting down everybody that had anything to do with it. I met some of the producers from Mandy, namely the folks over at Spectrovision, Elijah Wood, Daniel Noah, and Lisa Whalen. Became friends with them, became friends with the director of Mandy. Just started hanging out with them and we had all the same sensibilities and we're really trying to make art for art's sake, but really fun popcorn art. Through that relationship, Lisa Whalen sent me a script for Arch Enemy to see what I thought. And um, I told her, I said, I, I want to do this movie. What do we have to do? And things worked out. I met the director, Adam Egypt Mortimer. I had seen his film, Daniel Isn't Real, and was a fan of that. We got along right away. We had a lot of the same influences in terms of Arch Enemy story-wise and saw things eye to eye and what we were trying to accomplish with it. What was it you were trying to accomplish? We wanted to take the comic book genre and turn it on its head. You know, we were fans of the indie comics of the 80s and 90s that were commenting on society in America and superheroes and mythology and people's expectation. We were starting to enter into that era where we were finding out that a lot of the people that we had put up on pedestals actually had very big blooming skeletons in their closet. And so there was a movement away from protecting those people into the anti-hero phase or idolizing people who had big, great flaws rather than the squeaky clean superheroes of the big comic companies back in the day. And people like Frank Miller and Chris Claremont that were starting to bend the genre and some of the indie comics, you know, whether it's Grant Morrison, Pat Mills was a big influence. We wanted to make an indie comic book movie in an era where comic book movies are solely owned by the major studios. And so we wanted to take a superhero and drag him through the muck and dirt in a way that I don't think a studio would really do at this stage in the game. Unless it's with great protestation, a la Joker or something like that. So we wanted to show that indie filmmakers could dabble in that genre as well. So Max Fist is an alcoholic homeless man who has punched his way in from another dimension. <laughs> well, we don't know. I mean, Maybe, we don't know. Yeah. But this is what he's portraying. So how do you get into the role and what kind of character work did you have to do for him? He's like a possibly schizophrenic, drug addict, drunk, homeless man who lives under a bridge. So... I got hooked up with a man who lived on the streets for 20 years and I hung out with him and had a lot of talks with him and he would walk me through what a day would be, what a night would be, the arc of where you start, where you go over the course of years. So I had a coach, basically. How did you get hooked up with him? Who found him? 
I knew somebody connected to the downtown missions. In fact, I'd done some stuff downtown with him in the past. And so, you know, I called in a favor and just said, hey, man, is there anybody out there that you think would be a good match for me to speak to or spend some time with as I prepare for this role? And he came back and said, yeah, this guy's really great. I think you'll like him. And this guy was a miracle. I mean, the way he's putting his life back together, you know, I mean, it's really an amazing story this guy has, but that's how I met him was through my connection to uh, Mission Downtown. So what is it you did learn from him? Well, I mean, that lifestyle, it's scary and dangerous and kind of unbelievable when you really think about it. I mean, it's hell on earth. There were things that I learned from him that then were infused into the script. We actually went out and shot things based upon what he told me. You start hearing the stories from the actual people in real life. It's just horrible. It breaks your heart when you hear those stories to understand what somebody goes through to survive over the course of a day. You know, I'd huddle up with Adam and say, hey, he told me this. And do you think we could film that? Or maybe I could say this line instead in the script because I think it goes along with what he says. And 10 out of 10 times, Adam was like, yeah, that's great. Let's, Let's do that. I had a meth coach on set whose job it was to stand behind the monitor and make sure that on the scenes where I'm doing meth, that those are authentic. So, you know, I would kind of come back from a scene and kind of look back and see him next to the monitor and he would turn and go, that's it. (laughs) Or he'd come over and huddle up and be like, okay, when you're doing this and then, and then, and then. And shooting, was it a tight schedule? Very tight. Yeah. 17 day shoot. Holy crap. I mean, it was a lot. (laughs) You know, I mean, I didn't sleep for a couple months there because we shot in December. Then we were broken up by January. We had to push a week. So then we had to come back in January and finish filming. And thank God we did because a few weeks after we finished, we were all quarantined. What was the most challenging thing about that kind of shoot? There's a couple of big takes and one of them involves an action piece. So there's a scene where I have to break a door down, tackle a guy, slam him on the ground and then get up on top of him in the mounted position and just start ground and pound punching while there's all this other stuff going on in the background. And Adam wanted a set camera with a continuous visceral action scene with me breaking the door, bang, take the guy down, all one take, boom, 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 into the camera, blood spraying up in my face as I'm punching, stuff's going on in the background, furniture smashing. Inevitably, of course, when you always get to those shots, it's like, okay, end of the day, and we can't afford to go into overtime, and okay, we've got one hour to get this right. And it doesn't really give enough time to reset my blood on my clothes or reset my face or wipe my face off and reset the furniture. So you got to get it right once. You have one shot or else you're not going to make your day. Those are always the tricky ones because it's me standing behind this door trying to remember 10 different things that I have to do. All in character, run, pick the guy up on the ground, slam him, don't kill him, don't jam your knee, don't jam on top of his knee, get up, you know, in a mounted position with the camera there, don't hit the cameraman, don't slide into that, get up perfectly in frame, bang, the blood's hitting you, they need to do that, then you need to get up, then you need to punch the guy, duck the punch, grab him in the headlock, like there's a whole thing, and if anything goes wrong, bump the camera, whatever it is, it's over. So it's those moments where you really feel alive. And then on top of all of that, do you have producer brain going too at the same time? Or are you able to put that aside and just focus on acting when you have to? There are two person talking scenes where you can get so into it that, you know, you're just vibing and you're somebody else. But what I'm talking about, you have to split your brain because there's so much blocking involved and precise landings. It's like landing a gymnastic floor routine. So there is the art form of it and the enjoyment or whatever the character is you're playing on your face. 
But at the same time, on the inside, you're two steps ahead. This has to go there. That has to go there. I mean, you ask like producer brain. I mean, yeah, in that moment, everybody's gone and it's just you kind of directing yourself in this crazy blocking challenge while you're still in character performing. So there is a split on very technical pieces like that. Do you find that when you have like the fire lit about acting, are those the scenes that really get you going or is it the deep drama talky scenes? All the stunt stuff and the fight stuff, it's like a different sport. It's like a dance routine that's also telling the story. Acting to me always will be waiting for Godot. It's just two people on stage in a black box theater. Film's different. Film is about what we're doing. Not to say that there aren't stunts and fights and things like that in certain plays, but I think in terms of film, what you can do is so visceral and real that it's a different thing. So yeah, I mean, what gets me into acting is those dramatic scenes or the scenes where you get to play something or even, you know, comedic scenes, whatever it is, but all the physical stuff is a whole different sport. Having your own company and finding these projects and taking your career into your own hands, does that make it more fulfilling because it's coming from you completely? To a certain degree, yes. I think there's a lot more room to put your stink on something when you're also producing it or directing it or wrote part of it or rewrote the scene you're doing. Because then this story really came from you or belongs to you or you're the one who spotted it where when you're working on somebody else's production, it's not to say that things can't be collaborative, but I come from the school where you don't change Tennessee Williams' words. You say them the way that Tennessee Williams wrote them. And if that doesn't make sense to you, then you need to do some more work to figure out why. On True Blood, it's the same thing. It's like, I take Alan Ball's words and I say them. You know, I'm servicing his vision, his production, where when you're producing it, there's more of your vision that's present, especially if you're starring in the film and producing My final question that I always ask everyone, and I think it's interesting asking you because not only are you an actor and a producer, but you are big into D&D and you're an author and a designer. So you're creative in all of these different facets. But what does it mean to you to have this life in storytelling? It's amazing. I love storytelling. And I come from parents that are great storytellers in their own ways. I always love reading. If you gave me action figures, I just wanted to create a story with them. Or I was going to draw pictures and characters and create their backstories and tell you to whoever would listen about them. And that's really what I love. And so I've just dedicated my life to being able to do that. Like I said, there was a period in my career early on where it's like, you just need to pay the bills. You know, it'll make sense later, but you just need to keep working and keep growing in any direction and on anybody's set that'll have you. And then you get to a place where it's like, okay, now I think it's time, at least for me personally, to get into telling the kind of stories that I think are important, or I think there's a a way to be effective or make somebody feel something or think differently. And so now that's what it's about for me, whether that's writing a book or writing a weekly Dungeons and Dragons game or writing part of a D&D adventure module. These things that really excited me when I was younger, I'm getting to check all those things off the bucket list. It's all just figuring out how to tell stories in different mediums. I'm getting to do a lot of things that I'm really excited about. And um, I feel like I'm just at the beginning of it all. I can't wait to see where it goes. Thanks. Arch Enemy comes out December 11th. Joe Manganiello, I am so happy to have talked to you today. And thank you for joining me. Ah, thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was awesome. Hollywood Unscripted was created by Kurt Co. Media. This special episode of the Stuck at Home series was hosted and produced by me, Jenny Curtis, with guest, Joe Manganello, edited by Jay Whiting. 
The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any special episodes of Hollywood Unscripted stuck at home. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. Media.